Uh, We're in John 3 this morning. Last week, we were in John chapter 3, the first part, looking at the story of Nicodemus and, of course, the famous passage in John 3.16. Ironically, if there were two verses that I think every Christian should memorize in the Bible, and there's a lot of verses I think Christians should memorize, but if there were just two, Ironically, both of them would be found in John chapter 3. We know one of them, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you haven't committed that to memory, you should. The other verse is in John chapter 3, and it's in the passage that we're going to study today. And when we get there, I think you will realize why. The story story we're going to read today is about the fading ministry of John the Baptist and the growing ministry of Jesus. If you're taking notes, the title this morning is this, it's not about me. It's not about me. John was a well-known preacher as we've already been studying in the book of John. John the author and then John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a well-known preacher in these days. He was well-respected by the people, and he was respected by many of the religious elite in Judaism. And yet, John says of himself, hey, I'm just simply a voice pointing people to someone greater than me. And he testified at the baptism of Jesus, that this was and is the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. And after John made that testimonial of Jesus, many of the disciples of John began to follow Jesus. And for us, I think we realize in hindsight, I mean, that's a good thing, right? People that were following John are now following Jesus. This is great. But to those in the story, to those who were living out this experience, This was a confusing situation. The guy that they had been following, the guy that had had an impact on their life, his ministry was fading and someone else's was growing. And so this story is about how people process the inevitability of change. It's how people think about their own giftedness and the giftedness of other people and what God is doing in them and what God is doing in other people. And it's a story about the principle, I think, that helps us guide or guide us in those situations. So here's the point I want to make to you today. It's really simple. It's not about me, and it's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. When someone tells you, hey, what did the pastor talk about on Sunday morning? You can say, it was this. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. In fact, why don't we just say it aloud? It's not about me, it's all about Jesus. Let's pick up and read in John 3. You know, I was thinking about that. That's a really easy thing to say, right? It rolls off the tongue really nice. Try and apply that this week and see how easy it is. But let's pick up and read in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, and we'll read to the end. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, 
because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's your memory verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. One of the greatest yet toughest lessons to learn in life is that it's not about me. I, I read a book a few years ago. The author was Paul David Tripp. He writes a lot on parenting and marriage and counseling. And this was a counseling book. And he was recalling a story about a birthday party, a kid's birthday party that he went to. And he recalled at this birthday party that there was a kid there who started to throw a fit because he wasn't getting his way at another kid's birthday party. And Tripp recalls a parent walking over to little Johnny, getting down to his level, looking him in the face and saying, Johnny, this is not your party. (laughs) It's an important lesson to learn early on that not everything in life is about you. But this lesson is especially important. It's actually amplified for the person who comes to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because we have come to realize and accept, accepted this fact that I am not the center of the universe, that the world does not revolve around me. I didn't make the world. All of this doesn't exist for my glory and pleasure and greatness. As a Christian, I have accepted that basic fact. To believe in Jesus is to recognize that not only am I not the center of the universe, but I am a deeply flawed person and a sinner through and through and that what I deserve is not glory but judgment. What I need is not to be affirmed in my sin or in my fit throwing, but forgiven of it. To believe in Jesus also means that you have realized that all the answers to your greatest questions and greatest needs cannot be found in yourself. If they could, well, you wouldn't have those questions or needs. All of it is found from 
one who is above, who is outside of us, from God, from our creator. It comes down to us as a gift. All this is to say that coming to an understanding that life is not about you, at the very least, is an important lesson for all of us to learn, but it is especially important for the Christian to understand and apply in daily life and relationships. Just imagine this. Imagine how healthy our churches would be across the U.S. if every Christian lived out this gospel principle, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Imagine if that then flowed out into every relationship in the community that you have, the relationship with your family, with your spouse, with your kids. Imagine what would happen. In a church, there would be no more division. There'd be no more competitive spirit within that church or among other local churches. There'd be no more hurt feelings within a local church over petty differences of opinion. In other words, I think the believers would experience what John's kind of talking about at the end, joy to the full in Christian community. And the world would look in on us and see something completely and totally different from all that they've known and seen in the world. And I think this story, while speaking into that issue, helps us understand what the heart of the issue is and then gives us a way forward out of it. There's a few ways we can look at this story to find out what John is emphasizing and his overall point. We can look at it sort of from top to bottom. What does he say in the beginning? How does it end? We can look at it sort of as a story setting and conflict and rising action and all of that and sort of discern an emphasis. But I think it might be helpful with a third option and we just do a character study. It seems to me in the story that there are three main characters. There's John the Baptist, of course. There's Jesus. And then there's the disciples of John who are having this discussion. And so we're going to look at kind of the three characters and what they sort of display to us in the story, and I think the point is this, that not everything in life is about you. Instead, it's all about Jesus. Look again at verse 22 to 24. We're introduced to the three characters as John the author essentially sets the story. Here's Jesus, here's John, there's the disciples, they're baptizing in the same stream. Again, what we see is that Jesus, after he was baptized by John the Baptist and testified to be the Lamb of God, and after calling several of them to become his disciples, he goes right down the river, right down the street, and starts doing the same ministry that John the Baptist was doing. And some of them were thinking, hey, what is going on here? I mean, if you're going to do ministry, you better go at least an hour away from us. <laughs> That's probably not what they were thinking. But they're still wondering, wait a second, John, he, he got baptized by you. You were here first. Uh, it, it almost seems like he's just mimicking you. It almost seems like he's plagiarizing what you're doing. It, it seems like he's trying to compete with you, John. What, what is going on here? So you can imagine this created a bit of an issue. And it seems like that issue was centered around this idea of competition or, or envy among of some of John's disciples. We read there in verse 25, there was a discussion 
among them. And it says the discussion was about baptism or, or purification. And we're not really told any more details. I, I don't think they were arguing whether or not infant baptism or at what age or who should baptize or who is qualified for baptism. I don't think they were arguing th- those kinds of things. We're actually not told. It just says that they were having a discussion about purification. When we get to the next verse, though, we see the reason why this conversation was brought up. It wasn't because they were having a theological discussion about baptism. It actually seems, from the context, that it had more to do with the simultaneous and similar ministry of Jesus to the one that John had. And in fact, we get to the end of verse 25, and we see the real issue. It's not about baptism. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with the fact that people were leaving John and going to Jesus. And they were kind of upset about it. They were confused about it. But they used the topic of baptism and purification sort of as a Trojan horse to disguise the real issue, which was in them a competitive spirit, an envious spirit to have a spiritual monopoly over other people, which is a a good reminder. I was reminded of this as I thought about that. Sometimes people bring up issues, doctrinal issues, philosophical issues with a church or how a church does a certain ministry, and, and they'll use it to put other people down. And that may be harmless, Sometimes it may even be helpful, but other times, at least in my experience, I've seen that really it's coming from a divisive and competitive spirit. They're putting someone else down in order to make themselves look better. Nobody's doing ministry like we're doing it over here. And it seems like that's kind of what's going on in this situation. So what do we do when we find ourselves in circumstances like that? How can we discern when that's happening, and how can we move forward in truth? I think John the Baptist, his response to this circumstance, he gives us three gospel truths that we need to constantly remind ourselves of in the situations like this, and it has to do with those three characters. Number one, a right view of people. You can write this down. We need a right view of people. Number two, we need a right view of self, and then number three, we need a right view of Jesus. So let's start with that first one, a right view of people. Look again at verse 27, and it almost seems this is the first thing he says to those disciples in response to what they are discussing, and it almost seems like a proverbial phrase that he makes about the nature of man, but he says this in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In other words, the way forward from having a spirit of a competition, of seeing other people as threats to your life or your opportunities or your desire for success or any of these other things is to realize that whatever gift you have or whatever thing you have is a gift from God, not earned by you. You're not entitled to anything. So you have no reason to boast about it. You have no reason to be competitive about it. And then on the flip side of that, Whatever someone else has, whatever success they may be having in life or in ministry, and you're looking at them thinking, hey, how come I didn't get that opportunity? What he's saying is whatever they have going on is a gift from God too. 
And so instead of trying to compete with them, you should rejoice in what God is doing in their life. You shouldn't feel threatened by it. That's what John is saying. Paul makes a similar point in his letter to the church in Corinth. As many of you know who have read the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth was a catastrophe. They were so unhealthy. And one of their biggest issues was that some of them saw themselves as better than others in the church. And they would use petty little things to make themselves look better and put other people down. For example, Paul chides them in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And he says, some of you are saying things like this, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. In other words, some of them were using their connection to a certain apostle or early church leader to say, I'm better than you. And he is going, what is wrong with you guys? Why are you doing this? Which is why Paul remarks that he was thankful that he didn't baptize any of them. And then he backs up and says, well, I did baptize a few people. I Never mind. I spaced out. I forgot. There were a few people I baptized. Uh, but other than those people, I didn't baptize anyone else because he didn't want himself to be a cause for division. Side note, it says here in John, the text we just read, that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing when in fact, in the next chapter, John the author is going to clarify that Jesus didn't baptize anyone. I mean, imagine if someone was baptized by Jesus. What a cause for boasting. I mean, you were, yeah, you were baptized by Paul. That's pretty cool. But like, seriously, I was baptized by Jesus. Way better than your baptism. So he didn't baptize anybody. And, and neither did Paul. And he's making that point here. So to save himself or them from boasting about something that didn't even really matter. He's like, listen, I didn't baptize any of you. But listen to what Paul encouraged them, encourages them with in chapter 4. It's similar to what John says here in this little proverbial phrase. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The step forward, the first step forward, is to see that everything you have, everything someone else has, is a gift from God. Every skill, every opportunity, every resource, every experience is not something that you've earned. It's not something that you deserve. And it's not something that they have earned or deserve either. It's something that God has graciously given to you and also given to them. The opportunities that they get to experience, there's no reason why you need to be jealous. You can celebrate with what God is doing in someone else. What I've seen is people struggle to celebrate the joys and the opportunities that someone else gets because they make it all about themselves and how that will impact their lives when it's not about you. It's about what God is doing in someone else. So there's no reason to be jealous. We should be able to celebrate with them. In our story, the thing that Jesus is now receiving from God that John was previously receiving was these people. 
and the influence over these people. And John's conclusion was this. I had my time in the sun. I, I, the Lord had gifted me this moment, this opportunity to prepare the way for the Savior to come. I, I had that time. That was a gift from God. Now, now it's His time. And that's God's gift to Him. And we should rejoice in that. I, I think when we start to see ourselves, more importantly, when we start to see others in this way, it will greatly assist us in not only not having a spirit of competition, but it will actually increase our joy in life and ministry. I mean, that's what it did for John, right? At the end, what does he say? My joy is complete in this. And that same joy can be ours when we are coveting or envious of what someone else is experiencing and we're mad that we don't get that same opportunity. We're missing out on the joy of celebrating with them what God is doing in their lives as a gracious gift. That's, that's the first step forward, a right view of others. Then John moves to the second point, which is a right view of self. In verse 28, John sort of turns the conversation. And he reminds them of something he has already said about his relationship to Jesus. And he says this, I'm not the Christ, but Jesus is the Christ. You actually testified what I said already, that I am not the Christ. But in this moment, I think John it became clear to John that though the people heard what he said, they didn't understand what he meant by what he said. They didn't understand the implications of that on their life and ministry and relationship to him. So he gives them an illustration about a bride and a groom and the best man in a wedding. And, and what he goes on to describe essentially is Jesus, he's like the groom of a wedding. And the people coming to him, they're like the bride who are coming to the groom. And John, well, he's just the best man in a wedding. And what's so great about this illustration is that it so clearly makes the point that life is not all about you. I mean, think about that. How ridiculous of a person do you need to be to be the best man or the maid of honor at someone else's wedding, one of your best friends or a family member, a relative, and make it that day all about you. I mean, what an absolute narcissist you have to be. A four-year-old little Johnny can act that way at a birthday party, and we think, yeah, that's what kids do. Kids do that stuff, and you get down on their level, and you have a conversation with them, and Johnny, this is not your party. But when a 28-year-old does it, it's embarrassing. In fact, it's so odd, you almost never see it. And that's what John is saying, is this is so out of place. You would never see something like that. A best man or a maid of honor making it all about them. They know when they accept that role that the, from the very beginning, from the planning phase to the wedding day itself, their whole joy is to make that person's day the most special day of their lives. And that's, that's what John is saying about himself. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm not the point here. I'm not the Christ. Jesus is the groom. 
This ministry I have been doing has never been about me. It's always been about him and making his day special and the bride, the people who are coming to him, it's to make their day special as well. And John realized in this moment, somehow along the way, that message got confused with some of his followers. And somehow along the way, with his attempt to make Jesus famous, some of his followers tried to make John famous along the way. And he realized, oh man, this is not the way this is supposed to be. This is not about me. And it made me think, one of the most dangerous experiences a Christian can have is so-called success in life or in ministry. When God seems to be blessing what they're doing, their work, or their education, or their relationships, or their ministry that they're doing, all of these things, those are all good things, and those are gifts from God, and we should rejoice in those things. But there's an occupational hazard when that happens that you can be tempted to think that, well, I'm making a lot of Jesus, but it's kind of cool being made much of myself. And along the way of making Jesus famous, I'm becoming kind of famous, and that's kind of cool. In our day and age, the, and I, I say these things a lot because it gets under my skin, but the celebrity pastor, I think, is the quintessential example of this. People who want to make Jesus famous, but at the same time, the subtext of that is, I want to become famous as well. And I think John just pushes against that completely in this passage, and I, and I don't know what's worse, the person who wants to become famous as they're making Jesus famous, or the people who prop them up along the way. Like these, these disciples here, they're trying to make John famous. They're upset that John's ministry is fading into the background while Jesus' ministry is growing but in the moment, it all came to a head, and John had to make a choice. The leader had to make a choice. Will a spirit of competition, of entitlement, and jealousy creep into his heart, or will he help those around him, those who are influenced by him, see it's never been about me? It's always been about Jesus. And of course, we see John responded in the right way. In fact, he concludes this way in verse 29 and 30, again, a verse every Christian should remember. This joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our job as Christians is not to make much of ourselves or to gain a following or monopolize a ministry. Our job is to let Christ shine in the world. And sometimes that means you need to get out of the way in order to let that happen. Jesus shine in that place. On, on a practical level, I'll just speak into the life of our own church. This is one of the reasons why we pray for another church every week on a Sunday morning is because we recognize it's not just about us and what God's doing in Canby and Canby Christian, but that God's doing a work all over the place. Another example, honestly, I, I love coming to church and listening to Cody preach. I love listening to Rob preach. One of my greatest memories was when Dave Howard preached last summer, not this summer, but the summer before that, on Psalm 80, right? 88, Psalm 88, and just did an awesome job. 
And it was so encouraging. That same summer, I was in Chicago, and the church was growing while I was gone. And I thought, that's awesome. That's the way it's supposed to be. I wasn't insecure about that. I was thrilled. I'm thrilled by it. It's a joy and passion of mine to see other people get opportunities. I, I love to baptize people. It's just one of the great joys of my life and ministry. But you know what I love more? Seeing other people baptize people. If you are engaged in making disciples, then you are qualified to baptize disciples. You're qualified to do that. And I love it. Uh, Mike Hurtado did this uh, a few years ago. Um, he was evangelizing uh, someone who was ready to get baptized. And, and they were coming to me saying, hey, you know, when can you baptize this person? I'm like, I'm not doing it. You're doing it. I haven't had anything to do with this person's life and journey. You have. And Mike baptized him. It was wonderful. It was amazing. All that to say is we want to be a church marked by ministry cooperation, not competition. We want to see other gospel-preaching churches thrive. We want people in our church to get opportunities, not just to limit it to a few. And the reason for this is because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus and making much of Him, which takes us to the last point in John's response, a right view of Jesus. And this is where he grounds all of these things. All that he has said so far, he grounds it right here in verse 31. Look at it again. He says this, He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Let me just remind you of John chapter 1. The whole book opens like this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that all things were created by the Word and through the Word and for the Word. And then he says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He entered into time and space and became like us. And it's the same Word he's talking about here that came down from above. And the point that John is making is this. If his disciples want to try and compare his ministry and Jesus' ministry, there's no comparison. I'm of the earth. I'm just dust, is essentially what he's saying. The words that he speaks, if they're from God, they're not his words. They come down from above. They're given to him by God. And he's saying, this Jesus, he's literally from above. And the words that he has were actually from the beginning. And that word came down in human form. And there he is. His perspective, his knowledge, his power, his influence and glory are far beyond anything that John could possibly bring to the table, let alone compete with. John's of the earth. Jesus is from heaven. And he has come down. In verse 34, he kind of continues that point forward to say, Jesus' words are literally God's words because he is God and he comes from God and carries with him the seal of God. John's words are just the words of a mere man, but Christ's words carry the power of God. So he makes this point in conclusion, whoever receives his words and whoever believes in his testimony has life. 
and will receive the spirit of life. However, whoever does not receive him or his words will not have life and instead will remain under the wrath of God because of their unbelief. I think in that moment, discussion was over with these disciples. The point of the story is clear. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. And the reason it is all about Jesus is because of who he is. He is above all. And because he, who is above all and was above all, came down to give life to all who believe in him. This week, Let's strive to remember that everything that we have is a gift from God. And by doing so, let's remember that everything that someone else has is a gift. And we can rejoice in what God is doing in our fellow brothers and sisters, both locally and around the world. And let's find ways to make more of Jesus and less of ourselves. That's going to be a hard thing to do this week. But let's do it with the hope that people will see Christ in us and less of ourselves so that they come to believe in him and no one else. Let's pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and we confess that so often in life we are like little Johnny. We make it all about us. We don't celebrate what you're doing in other people. We see others as obstacles, competition to, to go up against um, when we should be seeing them as cooperation. Um, even in our own local context at times, we can be covetousness or have covetousness of what you're doing in other people's lives and wonder why you're not doing the same in our own. Help us to rejoice in what you're doing in other people and also at the same time be grateful for the things you're doing in our lives personally so that our joy may be full and complete. If we're making more of ourselves than, than we should, whether it's in our story or in our jobs or whatever it is, help us to take a, back, a step back in order to make much of Jesus who came down and who dwelt among us in order to lead us into truth. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.